The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. And our text for today's message takes us one day further along in this last week of Jesus' life. Remember last week, we started chapter 21, and I told you then that the Bible gives a great deal of attention to the last eight days of Jesus' life. Uh, One half of the Gospel of John I mentioned last week, and really about one-fourth, one-third to one-fourth of all the Gospels center on this last week of his life. So this, this day takes us one day further along, and this incident that we're going to read about today takes place on a Monday. It's a Monday uh, of a week that's filled with highly significant events that point to Jesus as the Messiah of the Jews and also as the Savior of the world. Now, one of the activities that took place on this day was the cleansing of the temple. And this is, in fact, the second time that Jesus did this. Uh, Immediately upon the beginning of his ministry, three years prior to this time, he went into Jerusalem and he went into the temple, and there he found people that were buying and selling, people that had desecrated the house of God. And the Gospel of John records how that Jesus went in there and threw over the tables of the money changers and drove those people out. And you can read about that in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. And so at the beginning of his ministry, by going into the temple, Jesus set the tone for what his ministry would be like and what he was about to do. What he was doing was defending the holiness of God, and his work on earth would include calling people back to true worship and righteousness. So he finished his ministry. Here, it's the last week of his ministry. He's back in the temple again doing the very same thing. Now, you'll note in the story of the Gospels that when Jesus met the woman at Jacob's well in Samaria, he told her that one day everyone will worship God in spirit and in truth. And so here, in the end of his ministry, as one of his last official acts, in this last week of his life, he went back to the temple to show that he had the authority to call Israel back to the worship of God. Now, if you look in this 21st chapter and verse number 12, you stand with me once again, please, as we read God's word. Matthew chapter 21, verse number 12, it says, And Jesus went into the temple of God, and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves. And he said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. 
Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the powerful truths that we find here. Open up our hearts to the message today. Help us to see what you'd have us to that will strengthen us in our faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I said just a moment ago that this is Monday of the week that will end in the crucifixion of Jesus. On Sunday, Jesus entered into the city to the praises and the accolades of the people. They shouted out as he came into the city, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Last week I spoke about this and explained to you that that was a mob scene as Jesus came into town riding on the back of a lowly donkey. And as he did, people came and threw palm branches into his way and they proclaimed him as the king. Now, you remember that that was according to the prophecy of Zechariah in verses 4 and 5 of this chapter. It tells us that there is a prophecy about this, that the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem in this way. And that happened on a Sunday. Now, you may not be able to recognize that by reading this particular text, but it was Sunday that that happened just before he went into the temple. And so when you read all the gospel accounts and you put this all together, uh, you'll read in Mark's gospel that the procession uh, and the entry into the city of Jerusalem and the accolades of the crowd were all the way up until Jesus reached the temple and then the crowd began to die down and then Jesus left the city and went back to Bethany and spent the night. So this is Monday, the next day, and on that morning, Jesus went straight back to the temple, and once again, he fulfilled the words of the prophet. Now, if we go to Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, you'll find there a a prophecy about John the Baptist, but uh, Malachi rather didn't stop with that prophecy. This is what he says in chapter 3, verse number 1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. That messenger, of course, is John the Baptist. Then it says, And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. And so we see in this text there is more prophecy that is fulfilled, and that will be true over and over and over again as we go through this last week of Jesus' life. Now, if you ever doubted the truth of the Bible... Just take some time to do a study. If this is all that you can do, take some time to do a study of the last week of Jesus' life, and you'll be amazed at how many prophecies there are in the Old Testament that are fulfilled during this last week. But it was on this Monday morning that Jesus went into the temple, and by the way, that's a foreshadowing of what he will do in the last day, When Jesus comes back to the earth, he'll come to Jerusalem. He will purge, worship there again. He will defeat all of his enemies. You read the book of Revelation and you'll find that the Antichrist will usurp the authority of God in Jerusalem. And he'll be sitting in a temple there. But God's going to destroy that temple and he'll throw the Antichrist out. And then there will be a new temple built. And all the people, all the nations of the world will come there and they will worship Jesus Christ in righteousness and in truth. They will worship him as king of heaven and earth. Now what we have here then is just a very faint picture of what the whole world will see in those last days as they recognize the authority of the king. Now remember if you were here last week that we also talked about the secrecy of of, uh, Jesus' kingship 
how that each time that the people tried to take him and make him a king, that Jesus stopped them. He stopped any movement that had the potential of upsetting the timetable that was set for him to be crucified. And so when people would have made him the king, he stopped them. But now we've come to a place where he doesn't stop them. He wants the recognition. And that's because he needed to have the, the attention of the chief priests and the scribes. He needed this to be a, an event that the whole city would recognize, that people around the world, in fact, would recognize. He didn't want to have an obscure death of a criminal in Jerusalem, but rather he wanted to be hailed as the king, and this event was to impact the history of the world. And so he encouraged the shouts and the praises of the people because that raised the opposition of those chief priests, those religious rulers, and those of the Romans... And that incited them to put him to death at exactly the moment that he determined that it would be done before the foundation of the world. And the people obliged that because God put it into their hearts. They hailed him as the king, but he didn't do what they thought the king should do. Now, what he should have done, according to their expectations, upon coming into the city, the first thing that Jesus should do is to head straight for the seat of Roman government to head right to where Pilate was and to overthrow the authority of Rome over Jerusalem and over the, the nation of Israel. But instead of going to Pilate's headquarters in Rome, the first place that Jesus went was not in their expectation, but instead he went to the temple. He went to the place that was the stronghold of the Jewish religion. And that's because at this time he had no business with Rome. There's another time for that. This time he's concerned with who it is that controls the life, who it is that controls your life, rather than who controls the economy. Well, this is all about personal salvation. It's about a God of creation who gives life to all. And it's about a God who says that every person must bow down and worship him. And so he didn't go to the halls of government. That's not where this will be settled. He went to the temple. He went to the place that stood for religion, and he started there. That's the place of worship, and that's the place where God always starts. What God does in his dealings with man, he always starts with the heart of man, and he begins with our worship. And here he started with his own people first, because Jesus had to have his own house in order before he could come to judge the world. And hopefully next week we'll spend a little bit more time on that aspect of what happened. But let's notice here the reason that Jesus went to the temple. Why was it so important that the first order of business upon entering into Jerusalem is that he would go to the temple? Why is that? Well, first we would look at the pollution of the temple. Verse number 12 says, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Now, three years earlier, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus went into the temple and he found it in the same condition that it is now. He began his ministry at the temple and he ends it at the temple. And the first time that he went in, he turned over those... Uh, tables of the money changers, and he threw those men out. But here we find that those same polluters are back at it again. They had set up shop again, 
And I suppose because Jesus enforced no penalties against them and because the leaders were perfectly fine with what was going on there, these men saw no reason at all not to go in and do the same thing all over again. And so he went back and he found it just as it was before. They didn't take him seriously. I mean, like a person that is caught and shamed in his sin, soon that person will return to his sins again if he has never had a change of heart. Now, do you remember what chapter 12 said when Jesus addressed the danger of being reformed but not being truly regenerated? He says this in Matthew 12, verse 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. There Jesus is addressing the danger of reformation. Now there are so many people that talk about how they want to get right with God, and they take the sin that's in their life and they try to root out the sin and they try to get rid of things and they say, well, from now on, I want to live like Jesus Christ. From now on, I want to worship God. From now on, I want to be what he wants me to be. Very soon, they find themselves back in those same sins again, doing the same things over and over again, repeatedly asking God for forgiveness again and again and again, which God will do for his people. But I'm talking about those who have really never had a change of heart, that they've really never trusted Christ and put all of their confidence in him. That's the reason that people go back into sin and they can't stay out of it. It's because their hearts have not been regenerated. They've just been reformed. No one has really touched their heart. God has not really touched their heart. Christ has not really come in. And self-reformation will never help you. Self-reformation will get you nowhere. You have to have Jesus Christ in your heart by faith. So here's the danger of reformation. People go back to the same sins again, and those sins keep compounding. Well, this is even worse when we read it here, because these are people that were warned. They had been thrown out of the temple of God, and they're back. And it's Passover week this time. And it only increases the activity and the sin of what they were doing and made it all the worse. Now, let's see if we can get a picture in our mind of what's what's, what's going on here. What is it that upset Jesus so much? Well, first of all, you should realize that the temple that's described here does not mean the temple proper. And by that, I mean the building of the temple, the sacred building of the temple itself. And whenever you read in the scriptures about people going to the temple, like the apostles went to the temple or Jesus went to the temple, that does not mean that they went to the structure and went inside of the temple itself. Now, the building, the temple proper, was just a small structure. It was made up of two compartments, One is called the holy place, and the other is called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And it's in the holy of holies that they kept the Ark of the Covenant. Now, by the time we read here, the Ark of the Covenant had been gone for about 600 years. It had been missing since the time of Jeremiah. 
But there was no one who could go into the temple itself. No one was allowed to go there except a few select priests. And only the high priest could go into this place that's called the Holy of Holies. And he was able to do that one day of the year. On that one day of the year, he went in twice. But he was the only one that was ever permitted to be in that part of the temple. Now, whenever you see paintings of this... You'll see paintings of Jesus driving people out of the temple. Well, they actually have it wrong because Jesus never went into the temple itself. At no time did Jesus ever go into it. Neither did the apostles ever go into the temple itself. Jesus couldn't and they couldn't because only the priests from the tribe of Levi could go there. And that was according to the strict commandments of God. So Jesus would never go into the temple itself because he was from the tribe of Judah. And one thing Jesus would never do, he would never break the commandments of God, and they would have killed him right on the spot if he tried to do that. Now, I wish I had more time to go into detail about what that's all about, but the Bible does tell us that when Jesus comes back again, that he'll not only come as a king, but he'll also come as the head of a new priesthood. The Bible describes Jesus as a prophet, a priest, and a king. And when he comes again, he will come according to a new priesthood, which is the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, I don't have time to talk about that today. I wish I did, but that's a subject for another time. So Jesus was not in that part of the temple. but Instead, he was in the temple complex. Now, at that time, the temple complex consisted of several concentric courtyards, And certain people were allowed to go in to these courtyards. And each of those courtyards had its own set of permissions. In one area, only the Jewish men could go. The men could bring their sacrifices, and they could get up close to where the altar was. They couldn't go all the way in to where the sacrifices were made. But they would bring their animal and hand it off to the priest. And they were a little bit distance off, so they could watch the priest take that animal and kill it, and then put it on the altar to be burned. That's the court where the Jewish men could go. Then there was another court where the Jewish women went. And in that court, they would go to pray. And only the Jewish women were allowed to go there. They couldn't go in as far as the men, but they had their own place to pray. But the courtyard that we're talking about here, we're not talking about the temple itself. We're not talking about the place where the Jewish men went, nor where the Jewish women went. But we're speaking of the court of the Gentiles. This is the outermost court of the temple. And the Gentiles would come there for prayer. The Gentile proselytes would come to this area for prayers. And the Jews didn't really think too much of the sacredness of this part of the temple. Uh, They put the Gentiles there to keep them separated from the rest of the people, to keep them away from the inner courts. And that's important because... The Jews did not hold that part of the temple grounds sacred. That's just a place for Gentiles to go. Rome had granted the authority that the Gentiles could go this far, and they allowed the Jews to kill anyone, any Gentile, that tried to go further than that point. Now, it's kind of interesting that if you go to Jerusalem today, do you know who is prohibited from going to the place where the temple once was? The Jews are prohibited, and that's because the Temple Mount, the place where the temple used to stand, is now controlled by Muslims. And so when you watch the news or you've seen the pictures where you see the Jews at the Western Wall, 
That's as close as they can get. That is now their most sacred site. They can't actually get to the Temple Mount because the Gentiles are there. So a complete reversal. Well, the court of the Gentiles is where Jesus went, and that's where this scene took place. The Jews didn't think much of the sacredness of that court, but Jesus certainly did. And that's because Jesus loves Gentiles too. And if he didn't, you and I would not be in this church service today. You see, God wants worshipers, and he wants them from all the nations of the world. Well, what's going on in the court of the Gentiles that upset him so much? Well, there are a couple of issues here. First, there were those in the courtyard who were exchanging money. Now, you see, there was a temple tax that needed to be paid each year, and that temple tax, up until the time of Passover, or shortly before Passover, could be paid out in the provinces. You could take the temple tax to wherever you were from, if you were in Galilee, for instance, or one of the other outlying areas. You could pay the temple tax in that particular area. But when it got close to the Passover time, you couldn't any longer pay it there. You had to actually bring the temple tax to the temple. Now, we saw in chapter 17 that there were people that came and asked Peter if Jesus paid his taxes. Do you remember that? That happened when they were in Galilee, and that's because the tax could be paid there. So they asked Peter, does Jesus pay taxes? Well, that that led us into this big, long discussion for several weeks on our responsibility to government. And remember what Jesus did then? He sent Peter to the Sea of Galilee, and he pulled up a fish, and in that fish's mouth was a coin, and that's what Jesus used to pay the temple tax. So the tax that we're talking about here is the temple tax. And now that tax, since it's close to Passover time, has to be brought to the temple itself. So there were people at the temple that were exchanging money. Now, the problem is that people would come from the outlying areas and they would have Roman money. And on that Roman money, there would be the picture of Caesar. Oh, the Jews didn't want that in their sacred temple. And so they demanded that the temple tax be paid with Hebrew coinage. And so there were people there at the temple that when all these folks came from different areas of the empire and different areas there around Jerusalem that didn't have the right, the right money, that they could take it there and have it exchanged for the kind of money that they wanted, the Hebrew money. So people came out of town, they came from the Roman provinces, from all these places, and there were these booths that were set up in the court of the Gentiles to exchange that money from the Roman to the Hebrew. But the problem is the exchange was not fair. It was a racket, and they would charge exorbitant amounts to change the money. Now, the temple tax was just a small tax. It was an affordable tax. But when you added this exchange rate on top of it, the amount that a person had to pay amounted to several days' wages. And so it was becoming harder and harder for the people to pay that. So the people were being cheated, and that was bad enough, but it was exceedingly terrible to do that right on the grounds of the place that was dedicated as a temple to the Jehovah God. And then we see another problem here that's even worse. They also sold animals for sacrifice in the courtyard. Now, that was a good idea if it was done fairly. If they had done it a little ways outside of the temple area and they had done it fairly, then that would be a good idea. And here's the reasoning that makes it a good good idea. Each head of the family had to bring a sacrifice for Passover. They would have to bring it to the temple. And so if you lived a long distance away, 
then you would have to bring your animal. You would have to keep that animal up. You would have to mess with it for the whole time that you were traveling towards Jerusalem. And you can imagine how difficult that would be. I mean, there were pilgrims, thousands of pilgrims from all over the area that streamed into Jerusalem. That's already a crowd. But what happens if everybody's bringing an animal with them and all the mess and all the things that would go along with that? So it would be much simpler to get your animal when you got to Jerusalem. And then what would happen if you had brought your animal all that way and then you took it to the priest at the temple and you presented it to him and the priest had to inspect it. He had to make sure that there are no blemishes on it. He had to make sure that it wasn't sick in order for it to be an acceptable sacrifice. So what if the priest says, I'm sorry, but your animal won't cut it? Well, then you don't have any choice. You don't have any, any sacrifice. There's only one thing that you can do. And that is you have to go find somebody that will sell you an animal. Now, to simplify that process, because it was a problem, they had set up shop in the courtyard of the Gentiles where you could get your guaranteed, sacrificial, approved animal. And so there were all kinds of animals that were there in this court. There were the lambs, the doves, and the pigeons, and so on. Now, let me give you an idea of what's going on here. The priest had a hand in making a profit from the sale of those animals. So they have a conflict of interest. They're the ones that approved the animals, but they're also taking a profit from the sale of the sacrificial animals. And so this is what they would do. If you brought your animal all the way from wherever you came from, and it wasn't tagged as coming from one of the sellers in the courtyard, then you could guarantee... It was a guaranteed rejection, I should say. I mean, the priests were going to turn it down. No matter how perfect the animal was, no matter how good that it looked, the priest was going to turn it down, and he would tell you to go get another animal. So these guys were out in the courtyard with a sign over their little booze that said, get your sacrifice here. Guaranteed approved sacrificial animals. And what they did, some of the animals that were brought in from other places that the priests rejected, they recycled it through these sellers, and the sellers rebranded them. They bought them at a cheap price, and they rebranded them as approved animals and sold it back to you again. And, they, and you took it into the temple to be sacrificed. Now, you can see what they're doing are just a tremendous evil racket that's going on here. And let me give you an idea of how much that people had to pay for these. Now, this particular text talks about those that were selling doves, and doves were allowed as a sacrifice for the poor people because they couldn't afford a lamb. Uh, You read about Jesus when he was dedicated at the temple. His parents, Mary and Joseph, brought uh, doves instead of a sacrificial lamb. That's because they were poor. Well, if you were to buy a dove out in one of the provinces or in another area of Jerusalem, a dove would sell for about four or five cents. But when you went to the sellers at the temple, that same dove would cost you four or five dollars. Now, you can do the math on that, that that's 100 times what that animal should cost and what it's worth. So the poor were being gouged, and the priests were making these huge profits off of the sales. Now, here's an interesting little factoid for you, that when the Romans destroyed the temple in A.D. 70, there was over 100 million dollars in the temple treasury. Now, it's no wonder that Jesus said, you've made my house a den of thieves. I mean, they had Benny Hinn and Creflo Dollar and T.D. Jakes and all those guys beat by a mile. 
So this is what Jesus found. He entered into the court, and what he found there was a smelly stockyards. People were being cheated. The whole sacrificial system there was a farce. And there were some true worshipers. There were some people that wanted to do it right, and they were really true believers. But the whole atmosphere was like a circus, and the sacred was profane. The whole place was polluted. And remember this, that each of those sacrifices that were brought were supposed to represent Jesus Christ. Every one of those was a picture of what he came to do. He came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And what these people had done was pollute everything that was sacred. They turned it all upside down. They blasphemed God with all their unholy activity. Now, you can hold on to that for a minute, and we'll come back to it. Now, secondly, let's look at the purifying of the temple. Jesus went in, and he found all of this junk that was going on. And there was this righteous anger that came over him. There was holy indignation. And he just walked in there, and he saw all of that, and he started throwing people out. He overturned the tables. I mean, he just went in, and he flipped those over, and coins and birds went flying everywhere. And you have to ask or wonder, how did Jesus do that? I mean, here is just one man. One man against all of these priests and against all of these people there, against all the vendors that are there, against everybody that's making money off of this, and they're not going to give up their gravy train easily. So how is he going to go in there as one man and just do what he wants to do and turn the temple back to what he wants it to be? How can he do that? How does one man shut all of that down? Well, there's some suggest that the people were on his side. They were being cheated. No doubt that's true, they were on his side, but I don't think that that adequately explains how Jesus was able to get all of those people out of of the temple. Now, incidentally, the Bible doesn't say how he did it. In the book of John, the first time, it says he took a whip, and with a whip, he scourged them and drove them out of the temple. He may have done that this time, but I have another suggestion for you how it was done. I'd like you to take your Bible, if you would, and turn it to John chapter 18. This is about a day or two later in the week when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas and a band of officers from the priests and the Pharisees were looking for Jesus, and Judas knew where to find him because Jesus often went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And so Judas went there, and sure enough, he found Jesus. Now, we look at John chapter 18, verse number 3. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. When Jesus spoke, they fell backward to the ground. Now, he didn't touch anybody. He didn't push anybody over. This is just the force of his voice. It was the authority of his presence, and that was more than they could bear. And that voice, when Jesus spoke, that's a voice that's powerful enough to calm a storm on a sea. Remember that? He said, peace, be still. And by the way, in that psalm we read just a moment ago, Psalm chapter 27, you'll find this, that his enemies stumbled when they approached him. Look back back at that psalm when you get a chance and see that. 
So I don't think it was just the support of the people. He commanded them out, and they went out. When Jesus says, go, you don't stay. Now think again. Let's go back to these animals for sacrifice. They represented him. Everything that was in the temple was supposed to be about him. He came to purify their worship. He came to vindicate the holiness of God. And may I say to you that Jesus is still interested in doing the same. Did you know that he wants our lives and our worship to reflect God's holiness? Someone has well said that in the Old Testament, God has a, has a temple for his people. But in the New Testament, God has a people for his temple. Do you understand that difference? He has a people for his temple. In other words, we are the temple of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So God is still calling us to holiness in our worship today. Our bodies are his temple. And our worship must start with what we do with his temple. We're encouraged in scripture to walk with God. And when you see in the Bible that it says to walk with God, it talks about our walk, that means the way that we live our life. And that's because we're carrying the temple of God wherever we go. We're not to profane, we're not to pollute this temple that Christ has purchased with his own blood. Now here are people that are killing thousands of sacrifices. They're shedding blood everywhere. But that blood fell on ground that was desecrated. Sacrifices were made without regard for the Holy One that they represented. And this is the way you are. Your life represents Christ. Your life, the Word of God says, is a living sacrifice. So what are you doing with it? What are you doing with God's temple? What are you doing with this place that God intends to be holy and where he intends for worship to him to come, to come from? And then we ought also to note that the Bible speaks of the church collectively as the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul told us that in that place. And so we also have to think that what are we doing as a church that's holy and righteous and worships God? Peter said, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. For as a church, we need to look and see what are we doing in our worship to God. Is it right? Are we fulfilling God's purpose for this church? Now, I want you to think about something else in these few minutes as I, as I close today. I know that you're thinking, or at least you should be, how terrible it was for these men, these people who were supposed to be the people of God, how terrible it was for them, how crass it was for them to turn worship of the thrice holy God into a commercial enterprise. Who would do, who would do that to something that was so sacred? Do we see anything like that today? I mean, who would do this to something this sacred? Would Christians ever do something like that? Well, actually, yes. If you go to Jerusalem today, and you go to the Christian quarter, and you go to the Christian churches, you'll find them crawling with vendors. And they'll sell you every kind of religious trinket that you want. 
all kinds of idols, T-shirts, chains, bracelets, necklaces, all those things, and they're making big bucks off of all of it. But you don't have to go to Jerusalem to see this. A few years ago, we went down to the mission in Santa Barbara, and I was amazed at all the stuff that you could buy there. Uh, They still hold services in that mission. Uh, The Roman Catholics do. And right next to the sanctuary is a place where you can buy all the religious paraphernalia that you want. All the rosaries, all the crosses, all the little idols, all the little trinkets, anything you want that will maximize your experience of worship. Do you understand how pagan that is? In Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul ran into trouble with pagans at Ephesus over this very thing when people started getting saved. See, there in Ephesus, they had silversmiths that were making all sorts of little trinkets. They made uh, little, little models of the uh, temple of Diana, this huge temple that was in Ephesus. And they made little bitty statues of the goddess Diana, and they sold those to people. But people started getting saved, and so they stopped buying all of those little trinkets. And so there was a, an outcry, there was an uproar, there was a riot, and Paul just barely escaped from Ephesus with his life. It was a pagan practice, selling all of these things in what was supposed to be the temple. And people are doing it today. And now Christian churches have taken up, all of these so-called Christian churches have taken up pagan practices. I mean, what do you think Jesus would do if he went to the mission in Santa Barbara? First of all, he doesn't hang out there, I'll tell you that. But if he was to go there, what, what would he do? Would he put up with that if that was his house? Certainly not. He would throw a lot of people and a lot of stuff out of that place. That's not true worship. And then some of you may not like what I'm going to say next. What if Jesus went to the Christian bookstore in Santa Rosa and saw what they sell there? No, it used to be you could go to the Christian bookstore and you could find some pretty good books. And and you could go and you could shop around and find a nice selection of King James Bibles. But you go there today, Bibles are an afterthought. That's not really a part of their main sales. That doesn't seem to be the business anymore. And a King James Bible, that's a rare commodity. In fact, I went to the Christian bookstore in Santa Rosa, and this is one that's now closed. But I went there and looked through the entire bookstore, and I could not find a Bible. Not of any kind. I don't mean just a King James Bible. I mean, there was none there of any kind, no Bibles at all. But they had all this other stuff. They had all the Christian CDs of all of these artists who sing their praises to this God that they're supposed to worship or sing to Christ or whatever, and their lives are just a mockery of him. And that's a big business, a multi-billion dollar business. Why not make some money off of that? And then you look there and... You see all the stuff that they have? Again, you have all the little trinkets and all the necklaces and bracelets and all those kinds of things. Everybody's making money off, off of Christianity. But you know, that doesn't bother me as much as some of, some of the stuff that they sell, that, that, that this paraphernalia that they have that has the name of Jesus on it. I mean, just mocking, I think, the name of Jesus. What have they done to the sweetest name under heaven? You know, I like a story... Well, I say I like it, maybe I don't like it, but it's a story that was told by James Montgomery Boyce about a man who went into a Christian bookstore and as he was going to the, through the checkout line, uh, and on a stand next there to, to the register, there was a hat 
that said WWJD. And he didn't know what that meant. And so he asked the, he asked the sales clerk, what does that mean, WWJD? And she said, oh, that stands for what would Jesus do? And he stood there for a moment and he thought about it. And he said, I don't think that Jesus would spend $10.99 on that hat. <laughs> and isn't that true? All of these things that are supposed to be Christian, all the money that's being made, all the trinkets, all the crosses, all the jewelry, all of the junk that people have that they buy in the name of Jesus, and it's big, big business. And if you took one-tenth of all of this stuff that was collected that's supposed to be about Jesus and actually put it into the ministry of getting people saved and winning people to the Lord, this world would be a totally different place. Our money should be spent there, not on all of that junk. The crosses won't help you. I know you wear crosses, okay. That's not going to help you, though. It's not going to do anything for you. All the stuff with WWJD and little bracelets, on none of that stuff's going to help you. It's where's your heart when it comes to God. We don't need to waste our money on those kinds of things. But here, Jesus came riding into town on a donkey, and people thought that he would go straight to Pilate's palace, but he didn't go there. He went to the temple. Judgment must begin at the house of God, folks. That's us. Judgment must begin at the house of God because that is the only place that will change society. That's the only thing that's going to bring us right government. It's what takes place in the house of God. Well, I'll come back to that next week. I want to talk some more about these kinds of things. What is it that Jesus expects to find in our church? And then I want to talk about the praise that we have for God who is our Savior. So you think about that. What kind of service are you giving God? What kind of worship do you have? Is it polluted? Have you polluted God's holy temple that's right here? Do you do some things that you ought not to be doing? Some things that you need to get rid of? Think about that in this next week. And let me tell you something about it. As the title of the message says, God will not live in a dirty house. And so if you expect to do things for God... If you expect to be something for God, then you better let him come in and clean up the house because he's not going to live there any other way. God does not live in a dirty house. Let's be careful what we do with God's temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and first we must confess that we're nothing like what we ought to be. Oh, I, I thank you, Lord, that we do have dedicated people in our church, and I thank you for those who come out on a Sunday morning and those who are interested in hearing the Word of God. But there's so many of us that our lives throughout the week don't even reflect that we've been in church at all. Lord, I pray that that would change. I, I, I pray that you would make us Christians every day of the week, people that are taking the holy temple of God with us everywhere that we go, and we recognize that, and we would never want to profane God's holy temple. Lord, help us to be what you want us to be. We pray for lost sinners today, anyone who doesn't know you as Savior. Certainly you don't dwell with a person who is not a Christian. So we pray for their salvation. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to some heart today. Draw us all closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.